0: Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us. Shape and fashion us into your likeness so that the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Lord, we today open our mouths. You've told us that if we open our mouth wide, You will fill it. And so we, as we come before this text, want to open our hearts. We want to say to You, God, speak, O Lord. Use Your Word. Plant it deep within our hearts. Use Matthew 13 today, Father, to help us to understand the enigma of Your kingdom. I pray that you would open eyes of men and women here today who do not know you, who are searching, trying to figure out what the real purpose is in life. Lord, that today would be a day where they see the kingdom and receive you. And Lord, I pray for those who know you that we would get what the kingdom is all about so we can know how to live and not be bitter and angry and resentful and retaliatory people, that we could be free to love and free to give. Oh, God, help us to see what your kingdom is like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Personal expectations can be very powerful. Meaning, you have an idea of how something's going to turn out, and then when it doesn't, sometimes you can be rather disappointed. Don't raise your hand to this question. But I wonder how many of us would say that... Your life has turned out basically how you expected it to turn out. I wonder how many of us would say, you know, honestly, when I thought what my life was going to be like, this is not what I thought. The problem is, is when that happens, um, turmoil of soul can take place as, as God's purposes and your expectations come into collision. In 1995, we were in an ultrasound room. My wife and I had discovered joyfully that she was pregnant, and she went to her first OB appointment only to discover that she was measuring quite a bit ahead of where we thought that she would be in terms of her pregnancy. So the doctor said, nothing to worry about, probably got the date wrong, let's just go and get you an ultrasound. So we're in the ultrasound room, this is the first one we'd ever have, and it was taking forever in fact while the ultrasound technician was doing her thing i noticed that she kept staying on one side of my wife's womb and it made me a little nervous in fact that towards the um, about half hour about a half hour through the procedure she said okay we're about halfway done and i was like halfway done what's going on here so my wife left and she's um, going to come back in a few moments and then i noticed over the shoulder the technician typed in these words fetus a and I saw that, and I said, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Fetus A. And she looked at me, and she smiled. She said, yeah. And I said, that implies, and she said, a fetus B. And I said, and this, as my wife comes in the door, this is how she heard it, I said, twins? Like that? And so we both sat on the edge of that bed. We laughed. We cried. We panicked. We freaked out. We rejoiced. We worried. We did all those things all at once in a period of Oh, about 13 years now. So, and, And our expectations and God's providence collided in that moment. And you know when that happens, there's a lot of funny things that go on inside of your heart. You can probably think of a moment like that in your life. You know, it's one thing when it comes to your personal life. It's even another when it comes to your spiritual life. When how you envision the kingdom of God to be doesn't really match with reality. For instance, you may have heard someone before who said, you know, if God is good, then how can he allow these bad things to happen? That's a collision of expectations. Or maybe somebody, you know, who's come to Christ says, I thought that coming to Jesus meant that my life would get better, not worse. Or someone who joins a church, maybe even this one, and you realize that the church is still made up of imperfect people, and you just realize that the church can at times be really disappointing. There's one more expectation, though, that I just want to put in your minds and hearts, because I think that all of us at some time or another feel this way, and it's this: you know, I know that Jesus is a winner, but there's sometimes that it really feels like we're losing. You ever felt like that? With your kids, your marriage, your own walk, maybe what's happening in our country, in the world. You, you look at the world, and you just are like, I. I know, oh victory in Jesus, I can sing that song, but it feels like we are on the losing side of the equation so often. So the question that we're going to wrestle with today is that whole issue of our expectations of Jesus and how this relates to the reality of him being this enigma, this challenging person to try and understand. And what we're going to talk about this morning is this, that we need to be careful how we evaluate the success of his kingdom. Two sides of this coin. First, be sure that we're careful not to assume that we know when God is pleased with what we're doing, as though it's successful, and also be careful that we don't quickly assume that things aren't going well when God is still working out his plans. And today we're going to look at three parables, the parable of the weeds, parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. We're going to figure out how Jesus describes his kingdom with two things, and then look finally at Four applications of how should we then live in light of this. So the first is this question. What is the kingdom of heaven like? There's two things that come out here from these three parables. And the first one comes out of the parable of the weeds and the wheat. And here it is. It is that the kingdom of heaven involves a vindication that is delayed. In other words, the the, the parable of the weeds and the wheat show us that when it comes to the kingdom of Christ, vindication is coming. But it's often much further out than maybe what we would anticipate or even want. So Jesus begins this parable of the wheat and the weeds by saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he jumps into a fairly straightforward storyline. A man sows good seed in his field, and an enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat and then goes away. Now, for those of you who grew up with an older translation, you know this parable as the parable of the wheat and the what? Tears, right? What's a tear or what's what kind of weeds are we talking about? Well, the word weed implies a variety of darnel weeds that closely resembles the wheat And in fact, it's almost impossible to distinguish it between the wheat until harvest time when the wheat ripens. And then you can see clearly what is a weed and what is indeed wheat. What we see here is that while the man planted good seed, an enemy comes in and plants this variety of weed that closely resembles the wheat. And so there's a deceptiveness in the planting of it by the part of the enemy. And also a deceptiveness as it grows. And the only thing that will verify what are weeds and what are wheat is time, according to verse twenty-six. And that's why the servants approach the master and they inquire as to what had happened. Apparently they saw things growing and they're like, wait a minute, there's there's weeds and there's wheat here, and they come to the master asking him, Did you plant good seed or not? And he then explains to them that indeed an enemy must have come and planted weed amongst the wheat. And then they suggest that the solution to the problem would be to go through and pull up all the weeds immediately. Verse 28. But the master has a different plan. Look at verse 29. The master said, No... Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So the master's plan is, let's not worry about it now, the wheat and the weeds are going to grow together, and then I'll deal with this in the future, when the weeds and the wheat are very clear. So that's the nature of the parable. Now, gratefully, we have Jesus' own explanation of this parable, beginning in verse 36. And what's remarkable is that almost everything in this parable has an allegorical connection, and Jesus makes that connection for us. Now, not every parable is like that. You can't make a big deal out of everything. But in this particular parable, almost everything in the parable has a significant correlative um, element in terms of symbolism. Verse 37, there's, there's eight different observations to make here, just quickly. Uh, verse 37 tells us that the sower is the Son of Man. So that should have been pretty obvious. When you're reading this, it seems to come out very clearly that Jesus is the one who's doing the sowing. What you might not know, though, is that the sowing is in the present tense, meaning this is not just something about Jesus doing it in the past. This is the fact that Jesus is continually sowing, and as he's continually sowing, somehow there's this dynamic of the enemy continually planting um. These weeds. So it's a continual sort of event. Next, we find that the field is the world. And the reason this is important is because Jesus wants his disciples to see that what they see isn't reality. So they're looking at the crowds, and, and maybe they're all excited about this new popularity that Jesus has gained, and they're all excited about people who are coming to hear the message. And what Jesus wants them to know is what you see is not what's really going on. I see these crowds as wheat. And weeds. So you remember that kids' game used to play duck, duck, goose? Where kids would sit around a little circle and go around, duck duck, 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 goose. And then one would jump up and run around. So the idea is that without this being a game, Jesus can look at the crowd and go, wheat, 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 weed. Weed, 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 weed. Wheat, 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 weed. So Jesus looks at the crowds and he sees something different disciples don't see that intermingling in this crowd are those who are his followers and those who are not verse 38 we find that the good seed are the children of the kingdom they belong to god interestingly they live in one world while they belong to another they're children of the kingdom And then we see that the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Verse 38, he identifies here, Jesus does, that those who are not following him are actually sons of the evil one. So notice again that there is no neutrality. There's no hybrid here. There's no genetic altering of the seed, kind of a natural seed and an unnatural seed. No, it's either you're an enemy or you're a friend. You're either his child or you're the son of the evil one. Verse 39 tells us that the enemy is indeed the devil. Jesus shows us here again that there's a contrast, a conflict, um, this thing that's happening between he and Satan, that the kingdom conflicts are happening right in front of them, although they don't see it. The harvest, he says in verse 39, is the close of the age. This is what's often called the consummation. So... In the meta narrative of Scripture, the big picture story of what the Bible is all about, it goes like this Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And we are living in between redemption and consummation, meaning that God is coming and the close of the age is pictured here as the harvest. We also learn in verse 39 that the reapers are the angels, and often throughout the Bible, angels are connected with the completion or the consummation of this age. And then we come to the summit of the parable, verse 40, where we find out that the harvest is indeed the judgment day. Now, the entire parable is drawing us to this particular point, that the harvest is the judgment day. Here we get the most material from Jesus, the most explanation in terms of what he's thinking and why he's even telling this parable. And Jesus indicates that at judgment day, the weeds and the wheat will be truly separated look at verse 40 jesus says just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the close of the age the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth So, here we find that at the judgment day, the close of the age, the weeds will become apparent and the angels will gather them up. But the summit of everything that happens takes place here in this final verse, verse 43. Then, that's an important word, then, then what? Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's what Jesus is driving at. Then. What's then? Then is the... Personal, glorious, triumphant nature of the children of God who finally have vindication and justice and righteousness has been brought full force to the earth. Now, because of the removal of all other sinful people and all other causes of lawlessness, now the righteous shine, he says, like the sun. Righteousness has won once and for all. So the meaning should be obvious. This day is so glorious, but it's not now. Vindication for God's people, and even God's unfolding plan of vindication of His own glory, is delayed. Justice is not immediate, but that does not mean it is not certain. Don't confuse immediate justice with certain justice. And therefore, we ought to be careful how we judge the success of God's kingdom. Righteousness may be, from your vantage point, from my vantage point, righteousness may seem to be losing, but we must remember, as a friend of mine says, the scoreboard is in heaven. The kingdom involves a vindication that is delayed. And this is how God has designed it you've ever planted a, a lawn, you know that when you are done taking all the rocks out of this new soil and you plant your seed for the first time, the first year, you just have to grin and bear it, because the grass grows, and along with that, all the weeds that were implicit in the lawn also grow, and I remember I bought some really nice grass seed at our house in Michigan, planted this lawn, put it underground sprinkling, did everything right, put all the fertilizer down, and I couldn't believe how ugly my yard was. It was just atrocious, all this work. And so I called the folks I bought the seed from and I said, I, I don't know what to do, my lawn looks terrible. And they laughed and they said, Just wait, it'll look fine. I said, Well, how about if I put some weed killer down? I said, No, 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 no. You put anything down on that lawn right now, you'll kill the good grass and you'll kill the bad and you'll kill the good grass and you'll kill the bad weeds. Just let it all grow, just mow it a lot, and next year you can use anything you want on your lawn, you'll be fine. See, the reality was the weeds were going along with the good grass. And my reference point of when to deal with it was simply off. So too in the kingdom of Christ, he helps us to understand that while the wheat grows, there's also weeds that are going to grow along with it. And just because God hasn't dealt with the weeds immediately doesn't mean he's not going to deal with them at all. This has enormous ramifications. But just put this in your mind for now. We'll come back to this that the kingdom of heaven involves a vindication that is delayed. So, the second parable is in regards to the mustard seed and leaven. And this tells us that the kingdom of heaven has an influence that is deceptive, meaning it's hidden, it's not very apparent. And in these parables, we have both natural elements, the mustard seed and leaven, and also things that are small but have significant influence. The kingdom of heaven, verse 31, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field... Jesus then goes on to say, It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes like a tree so that the birds of the air may come and make nests in its branches. So here we see his point. The mustard seed was a really, really small seed, about the size, think of a a little grain of fertilizer. Not a massive seed, a really small seed. The kind of seed that if you saw it sitting on a a table or on the ground, you'd think, what could that ever grow? It's just a small little puny seed. And the irony is, even though it's a small seed, it has tremendous... Tremendous power that this small seed if it grows could actually create a tree a mustard seed that can be between 8 and 12 feet tall large enough to even host many different birds in its nest probably referring to Ezekiel 17 and the way in which all the nations of the world would be blessed in this tree of grace. Now, you need to know that there are other seeds smaller than the mustard seed. Don't take Jesus so literally here that you think he's making a biological statement. What he's doing is using something in their field of reference that to them the mustard seed was the smallest seed that they knew of. And what Jesus is simply saying is that something very small can produce something really large. That don't equate small with little power. He's telling them size can be deceptive. In other words, his kingdom, although seemingly insignificant or maybe not widely accepted, his kingdom, although small, has incredible power. And then we learn about leaven. In the New Testament times, leaven was a piece of last week's dough. And you took it out of the dough and then you mixed it into next week's dough in order for that dough to rise. And Jesus says something just very simple about this leaven. Verse 33, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, you know that most of the time, leaven is not a good thing in the Bible. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what he's saying there is be careful because the way in which the pharisees are in their spiritual pride and everything about their hypocrisy it can infect so many people therefore he uses the analogy of leaven well jesus in this text uses leaven in a positive way in that leaven is something a small little amount that you could actually put into something larger and that leaven would affect the whole in our cupboard right now are two plastic bags that have some batter in them. And my wife was out of town this um, last couple of days, and she left me clear instructions on what I was to do with these bags. I was to put um, a cup of sugar, a cup of flour, and and something else in them, and uh, then I was to mush them together. My, My kids took care of it last night. I was like, Hey, guys take these bags, well, yeah, I don't know what to do, except we bang them and stuff, and what it is, it's, it's uh, the mixture for Amish friendship bread, which I absolutely love, I'm convinced it's food in the kingdom, I just really am, <laughs> and so my boys did all this, and they, and they mushed it all together, and what's remarkable about that is before, as you know if you've ever done this, before you use the bounty, you take a portion of it out, and, and then you pass the bacteria along to your friends, that's what you do. <laughs> And, and, and there's something growing, there's something alive inside of those bags. If you don't believe, just walk away for a few days and watch them expand, or as our boys did last night, they opened them and went, "Whoa! wow, Dad, smell this. No thanks, don't want to share. So there, there's something inside of there, and the point is that something small has a significant effect. So a little bit of leaven is able to infiltrate or to affect the entire A flower composite of what's going on in terms of making this bread. The point should be obvious. Something hidden can affect the whole. So something small can actually be powerful. Something hidden can affect the whole. And what Jesus has in mind here, friends, is the gospel. He has this notion of both he himself and what he's going to bring, the message that he has, and the fact that it may be viewed by the world as something that's small, insignificant, or, or maybe not really that impactful. But Jesus is warning his followers to not be deceived by seemingly insignificant material or content that small things can actually have a very large effect. Something hidden, something small, can be very effective even though it's deceptive in its appearance so that's what he says the kingdom of heaven is like it's small but powerful it's hidden but able to infiltrate it is something that involves a vindication that's delayed now in light of that how do we then think about our life, our world, if the kingdom of heaven is like this? How, how should this then inform how you and I look at life differently because the kingdom of heaven is like this? It's four things. The first is this. I want you to realize this morning that God is not like us, nor does things in ways that we would do them. Well, let me just summarize it very simply and say this. God is not like you. And you ought to say to that, Amen. So let's try that, shall we? God is not like you. Amen. And you need to remind yourself of that often. I am not God. I don't know what's going on. I don't see what's happening. And that's okay, because I'm not God. And what we see here in the parable of the weeds, and the parable of wheat, is that the ways of God's kingdom may not make sense to us and we might often be dumbfounded or even surprised at what God is doing and how he does it and we may even look at a field and go, well, who's the yahoo who mixed weeds with the wheat when they planted it? What kind of farmer mixes his wheat together? Weeds and, oh, I got an idea. Let's go and pull them all out right now. And and in our arrogance of knowing, quote-unquote, what's going on, and knowing a solution, we often draw wrong conclusions, and, oh my, we often create even worse solutions. Look at Psalm 135 and verse 6. I found this as I was making my way through our Bible reading for this year, and I just love this passage, underlined it, was thinking about it, and I love this text because it reminds us that God is in control and we are not. Verse 6, Psalm 135, it says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. You know, it's good to be reminded often that God does whatever He pleases, and I'm so thankful that we serve a good God, but I'm also grateful that He's not me. God does things that often don't make sense to us, and if... If you're going to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you're first going to have to come to terms with the fact that God doesn't always do things according to your agenda. Think of all the examples of the Bible of the ways that God did things which would seem so backwards to us. He uses the smallest nation in the world, the nation of Israel, to be his people. He puts questionable people in the genealogy of Jesus. Remember that from Matthew chapter 1? We see people that are in the list of his family tree. You you wouldn't think that this would be the kind of people that God would include. His son enters the world. The the coming of the Son of God comes as a helpless baby. Talk about weakness. The the first followers of Jesus are, are not influential, highly educated men. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're they're non-influential people. And even think about the the process whereby God purchases redemption, that his son dies and dies a death that's considered a scandal. The the kind of death that the Old Testament says his death is a curse. It's no wonder that most people looked at the life of Christ, looked at his death, and, and wondered how in the world that could even be something that God was involved in or behind. And yet here's the thing, God loves to use small, insignificant, or things that people in our world would call scum. In fact, Paul even says that, we are scum of the earth, so embrace that, yes, scum, for his glory scum. And he loves to surprise the world because it gives him the most glory. So one of the things we have to realize coming out of this parable is the fact that God works in ways that we might look at and go, I wouldn't do it that way if I were God. And if that isn't the orientation of your mind and heart, you will have a very difficult time making it as a follower of Christ because you will always want God to be operating on your playbook. And the first play in God's playbook is, get this lesson, I'm Lord, you're not. I'm God, you're not. Secondly, know that delayed judgment is still judgment. Oh, how important this is. Not only the the sovereignty, the lordship of Christ, but understand that delayed judgment is still judgment. You see, a delay in judgment can create two different kinds of emotions. Apathy and anger. Apathy comes when a person commits a sin and they do something wrong and there's no divine pushback. There's no consequences. They view themselves as kind of getting away with it. And so they do more wrong things and they seem happy. Uh, they, they seem fulfilled and there's no consequences and so in their mind they begin the process my mom and dad always told me that people who do this get in trouble and i just did it and i'm not getting in trouble so guess what happens they do more and more and more and more and romans 2 chapter 4 tells us that these men and women assume that the kindness of god is not meant to lead them to repentance You see, they misinterpret God's delay as somehow approving what they do. So you may be here today trying to figure out what's going on in your life and the claims of Christ, and you may wonder, well, the Bible says certain things are wrong, and I've done those things that are wrong, and nothing really has happened to me. And I I want you to understand, friend, that although nothing has happened to you presently, although I would argue guilt inside your conscience is one thing, it's a pre-warning of what's to come, don't confuse delay in judgment with no judgment. Like the Bible tells us that judgment is coming. So a delay can lead to apathy, but it can also, on the other side of the equation, lead to anger. Here's why. Something wrong happens to you. An injustice is done. Someone persecutes you. Or just simply says something that's unkind or untoward, and in your mind and heart there's a desire for justice to be done, a desire to get even. Now, not all desires to get even or have justice done are necessarily wrong. They can be But a desire for justice is is actually a right, a righteous thing. When a delay in judgment happens, there's a tendency in our heart to get angry, to get upset. It's our attempt to try and usurp the court, to usurp God's authority and say, I will have my justice and I will have it now. And that's why wicked words come out. That's why we try and get our pound of flesh. That's why we try to get even. Because at the end of the day, it's not just an anger problem. It's not just a problem of your past or how you were raised. It's actually a God problem where you are trying to take the role of God. Romans chapter 12 tells us, That instead of taking our justice, we ought instead to put our hope in God. Turn over there, Romans chapter 12, in verse 14. Verse 19 is the passage that I want, but 14 sets it up. And notice how there are so many things set in the context of, of what it means to rely on God's ability for Him to do His work in judgment even though it's delayed. Verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice, verse 15, with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible... As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Here it comes. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Two... The contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Why does he say this, overcome evil with good? You know why? Because judgment is coming. It's just not your job. And oh, how freeing that is. God will take care of it. It's just not my job. He'll, he'll make the wrong right. It's just not my responsibility. In other words... When you look at a field and you know there's supposed to be wheat there and there's also weeds, stop freaking out. Well, there's weeds! There's weeds! We need to take care of the weeds! And some of you are running around freaking out because there's weeds. And God's like, look, I'm going to take care of this. It's interesting to me right now, for a variety of reasons, as I kind of pick up the pulse of evangelical Christianity, I hear some Christians right now who I would describe as freaking out about our country, about the status of um, Christianity in our land, and for a variety of reasons, and right or wrong, I don't want to get into that discussion, but I do want to say this. What's concerning to me is how quickly we tend to freak out when instead there ought to be careful thought, active sort of um, writing and things that we think about and try and make a difference in our land, absolutely But this notion of freaking out because there's weeds in the midst of wheat, that's God's responsibility. So if you want to be a good public servant, you want to be a good person in the midst of the public square, argue strongly, know your facts, understand your Bible, but don't ever forget the battle at the end of the day belongs to God, not you. Third, never underestimate the power of the gospel. Something small has such incredible effect Consider how backwards the plan of God really seems. Here is the Son of God who comes to creation as a helpless baby. He takes on flesh. He lives a sinless life. He's abandoned by everyone. He's killed in a way that's cursed by God. And then he is buried. So what you have is one man, one life, one cross, one death, and then three, ways, uh, three days of waiting. And the whole world looks at Jesus and says, loser. And then Easter Sunday comes. And then God's righteousness is revealed and judgment comes. Or as Peter says to the people as he preached on Pentecost, and this Jesus whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. You know what he's saying? The judge who you're going to stand before, you just tried to kill him. And guess what? He's back. That's a horror movie if you were the one doing the killing. And no wonder they said, what must we do to be saved? To which Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Never underestimate the power of the gospel. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Vindication, eternal influence, beyond which anyone could have ever imagined through one man, one death, one cross, and a grave. Nobody in his room, in this room would have ever planned it like that. But God did. Here is a gospel loaded with divine power. And here's the other thing. This gospel, this message, this, this, this seemingly almost backwards story about your sin and a Savior and 2,000 years ago, Christ and the cross. This gospel, hear me, has the ability to get inside your heart and change you from the inside out. It is the power to do something in your life that no book, no counseling, no therapy, no person, no vacation, no job, no money, no experience, no pleasure can. Jesus can change you from the inside out. He can break the granite of your heart. In Italy, there's, I'm told, a grave that was covered by a great big slab of granite. And it became a bit of tourist attraction as a small seed of an oak tree fell somewhere in between the cracks of this enormous tomb. And over the years, the plant grew, and it grew right between the granite and over time pushed the granite so that while horses could never have pulled the slab of granite off, a small little acorn grew into a plant which grew into a tree and broke the granite in half. In the same way, this little gospel Of the word of Christ, if lodged in your heart, can break the granite of your sin and make you a new person. So don't underestimate the power of the gospel, nor underestimate the power of the gospel working through you. Jesus calls us to be like leaven. You're to go and infiltrate every area of of our society. You are to go and take the glory of Christ and the the word of God into the marketplace, into politics. You're to take it into business. You're to take it into schools. You're to take it on vacation. You're to take it in your neighborhood such that everything you do, you are to do for the glory of God. You are to be leaven in our culture and make the glory of Christ evident and seen. Finally, the caution I think here is that we should be careful how we define success. You see, it would be easy to think that a field of weeds and a field of wheat was a mistake. It'd be awful easy to dismiss a little mustard seed as so small. What could that thing do? It would be all too familiar to think that if you can't see something happening, then nothing is. But listen, God doesn't work that way. Therefore, we should be careful about how we define success. And for that matter, not only in terms of not defining things that are failures when they really are successes, but also being careful not to define things that are successes when they're actually failures. So one of the reasons this particular point is on my heart is that tonight we're going to break ground on the largest expansion project in our church's 25 year history tonight is going to be an awesome night we're going to pray we're going to worship we're going to break ground it's going to be i hope you can come back tonight it's going to be one of those signature moments but at the same time i just want to remind all of us that the kingdom of heaven is not defined by large buildings It's not defined by positions of power. It's not defined by credibility with the world. The kingdom of heaven is not even defined by the number of people who come. You see, it's true, as a friend, a person I heard say once healthy things grow. And they do. But so does cancer. And so we have to be careful and ask ourselves, what does real success look like? Because I think that God is often more involved in less than we think, and less involved in more than we think. My caution is to be sure that we keep our eyes on the right prize, which is not a facility or expansion or growth. Hear me, the real prize is Christ-likeness marked by the fruit of the Spirit. The real prize, beloved, is not just great gifts, but gifts... As the Bible tells us, without love is nothing. The real prize is that we might know Him and the power of His resurrection and even the fellowship of His suffering, that we could look back 10, 15 years from now and say, look, we have come to know Him. And more people have come to know him that we might fulfill the words of Micah 6a. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. These are the things that God says are the marks of my kingdom. So let us be sure that we know that the kingdom of heaven is often surprising. It shocks our expectations in order to remind us that we are not God. It challenges our preconceived ideas. It causes us to look at life differently, to serve with humility, and then trust in God's sovereign purposes. So the kingdom of heaven involves a vindication and an influence. A vindication that is delayed and an influence that is deceptive. And here's my caution. Jesus calls us to be careful about how we evaluate success when it comes to the kingdom because it is, after all, His kingdom, not ours. So, Father in heaven, I pray that you would, in your mercy, remind us that this is your kingdom, not ours. Lord, on behalf of our elders, I say to you, this is your church, not ours. This is your building, not ours. These are your people, not ours. My kids are your kids, not mine. So Lord, I pray that our bodies would be living sacrifices, that we would indeed be the temple of the Holy Spirit, surrendered ready to have you live in and through us, that we could be the fragrance of Christ. And oh God, I pray that indeed you would truly, as we pray at the very beginning, speak, oh Lord. Renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo through eternity. And by grace, God, we will stand on your promises and by faith will walk as you walk with us. So speak, O oh Lord, till this church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. That's what we long for. And so God, I pray that you would produce that in us even though we are a conflicted people in our hearts so at the beginning here church we've said speak oh lord my question is what, what is what's god saying today It's so relate to your expectations your ideas your sense of how life should be maybe you're here today and you today is the day for you to see the kingdom so afterwards we'll have some folks if you need to pray with someone about what's going on in your soul, or just someone just to to lift you up in God's grace, they're here. So Father, I pray, oh God, that you would speak. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.